Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Animal Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today, as with every episode, we have a great guest. Now, Brian Bender is the Vice President for Communication Strategy at SMI, and he's also a contributor to Politico Magazine. And Brian, before you left Politico, you were the defense editor, correct? Isn't that what your position was right before you left? Yeah, I was the Pentagon reporter for the Boston Globe for about 14 years, and then in 2015, became the defense editor uh, at Politico, where you know I was for about seven years overseeing much of their national security coverage. Now, a few months back, you wrote a great article, The Dangerous and Frightening Disappearance of the Nuclear Expert. And, and it was sort of a broad article that looked across the spectrum of this thing we call the, you know, the nuclear enterprise. And you looked at deterrence specifically and looked at who sort of the, the scope of the professionals in the deterrence realm and compared back to, you know, the early days of Rand when you had, you know, Schelling and you, you had Wolstetter and you had all the, you know, all of these sort of intellectual greats. And essentially, you you know, you and many of your, you know, the folks that you interviewed agreed that the bench depth was pretty shallow. Can you talk about the article and sort of what conclusions you came to? Yeah, so kind of this germinated kind of in the summer, early in the summer, when I was getting excited to see the Oppenheimer movie that was, you know, the big splash. I guess it came out in July. And you know, it had me thinking that, you know, if you pay attention to the nuclear issues and the debates and the budget and the modernization program that we're engaged in, the threats that are out there from Russia, from China, uh, in a big way now that I think we all would agree is is pretty new. And then, of course, the rogue states and kind of the non-state actor threats. You know, it was, I, I, I think it's obvious to those of us who pay attention that, wow, we live in a very different nuclear age than the beginning when Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project began and, you know, the atomic bomb was used to end World War II. And so I was doing a lot of thinking about how, how to present that sort of, com- how to compare and contrast then and now in a way that, you know, would be accessible to a more average reader who maybe doesn't pay attention as much as people like us do to what's been going on in the nuclear arena. So, um, that was sort of how it started. And, you know, it was interesting. Probably the main takeaway for me was that, you know, you know, if you talk to 10 nuclear experts, you know, my joke is you probably get at least 10 answers on a, you know, a particular question, maybe more, and often have very divergent views. Um, 
There are those who are very hawkish, who believe that we need to enhance our nuclear deterrent uh, in a major way. And then, of course, there's the arms control community that thinks that we're, you know, making the same mistakes, creating this madness, so to speak, of more weapons and, you know, in their view, more potential that we're going to use them. And so they want to reduce arsenals. They want to find ways to, you know, negotiate new treaties, et cetera. So a lot of different views on the nuclear issue. But I think what was surprising to me is almost everyone agreed across the spectrum that we just don't have the brain power that we need to think about these very complex, very dangerous issues, especially at a time where we have a world that it's not just the U.S. and Russia, uh, you know, the former Soviet Union that has these weapons that are large enough to destroy the world, you know, or much of it. Um, but you now have China with this breakout or build out, I think as Stratcom likes to call it. Um, and, you know, that presents a whole different set of factors on how do you deter, you know, not just one peer competitor, but two. And so that's kind of, um, <clears throat> that was kind of the widespread sort of agreement in talking to lots of experts across the spectrum is that whether you're someone who believes we need more arms control treaties or you're someone who believes that we need to be developing much more innovative ways to deter our, our enemies from using nuclear weapons, we really need to build a new generation of people that that, that are smart about this stuff. Yeah. And, and it seemed one of the sort of the big themes that you pulled at, the threads, was just this idea of how do you build one? And, you know, there, there seemed to be complaint from younger folks who perhaps may be interested that, Hey, it's just not that easy to, to become a nuclear expert, to gain the experience. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about sort of the barriers to entry, so to speak, into the field. Um, and you heard a lot about, the government side. In other words, if I wanted to be, you know, a nuclear deterrence expert, um, and I've, you know, studied this in college, maybe have advanced degrees, you know, it's really a pain in the butt uh, to get through the process to get into the government if you wanted to work for DOD or the State Department or the Department of Energy. Um, I think those agencies are aware of that, and they're trying to find some ways uh to make it easier to attract people. But, you know, um, but I think that also raises the question of like, what are the training grounds look like? In other words, to what's the feeder system so that you have people that are actually qualified for these jobs. Um, and I think that's also an issue that is of concern, which is that, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of threats out there. There's, um, Lots of things you could focus on if you're a national security practitioner, and that's the field that you want to go in. And I think there was a number of people I spoke to who said, you know, nuclear issues just aren't as sexy anymore. I mean, it used to be sort of the sexiest thing. And it was interesting. I forget who it was who pointed out that, you know, in the old days, if you were a national security person, by definition, you knew about nukes because you had to. You were trained. You you uh in your daily job whatever that might be in the national security arena whether it's in government or in the nonprofit world or in academia etc think tanks you had to know about nuclear strategy right because that was the big game in town 
then of course we had 30 years where you know from the fall of the the, the berlin wall to really you know the, the mid may, maybe the tail end of the first decade of the 21st century um where you know people just didn't really focus on it we thought the big threat had gone away i mean there was a, a tension on nuclear weapons after 911 but that was always in the context of you know could a nuclear uh, terrorist attack occur? Could a you know Al Qaeda in that case get nuclear yeah. material and, and, and cause havoc? Um, but you know the the great power nuclear standoffs kind of had receded. So um, so yeah, generally an agreement that we just don't have enough people going into this field. You know, for maybe some just obvious reasons, human nature. We focused on other things and we took our eye off the ball. Um, but then even those that are in the field especially young people, a lot of them will complain that, well, where do we go? How do we get jobs? And, you know, and I think one last point on this, I think you have to think about the pathway in two different ways. I mean, there's going into the government as a practitioner, whether it's in the military or as a diplomat um, or as a scientist, an engineer who's going to build these weapons, uh, you know, at the National Nuclear Security Administration or one of the national labs. But then, of course, there's this whole ecosystem of people that think about nuclear weapons, but in the academic, nonprofit um, sort of advocacy world. And obviously, they have a very different view of the use, uh, the utility of nuclear weapons. And, you know, um, a lot of the people I heard from who were complaining that, oh, you know, there's, there are people like, uh, you know, out there that want to do this work, but there aren't a lot of opportunities or a lot of pathways. A lot of those tended to be people that came from the perspective of, we don't need these things. We need to get rid of these things. How do we get rid of them? And, you know, in some of my conversations with them, I, you know, my rejoinder to that was, well, we still have them and we still have to manage them and we still have to operate them and we still have to develop strategies around them. And so like, it's nice and useful and probably quite important for people to think about how do we reduce our reliance on nuclear weapons? How do we get other countries to do the same? But we can't ignore the fact that we have a massive nuclear arsenal and some really bad guys do too. And so I'm not sure that a lot of those people that were complaining to me are necessarily the qualified people to go to Stratcom <laughs> to figure out how to manage the nuclear enterprise. I mean, they, they, they want to get rid of it, a lot of them. So there's yeah. that tension too. Yeah, it's kind of interesting if you, you know, if you think about, so, for example, the recent uh, Strategic Posture Commission report, you know, that was six Republicans, six Democrats, and some folks who were pretty staunchly anti-nuclear, and they were able to, you know, essentially they got the threat briefs, and then after they got the threat briefs, their positions changed. And so there was a a sense of that seeing how the the world really works and what the threats actually are and what the capabilities are and what your adversaries are really doing that had a quite a bit of utility in helping to shape the way people saw things. And so I I wonder you know as I think about sort of opportunities in the, you know, in the nuclear world. And I spent most of my career either in uniform or as a air force civil servant. Uh, to me, there was always plenty of opportunity. 
you just, you had to be willing to take it. And it wasn't, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of, and talked to young folks who say, well, I want to make nuclear policy. And it's like, well, you know, I, I hate to, you know, break it to you, but I, I appreciate that as a young person who just got out of graduate school, you want to make nuclear policy, but you're probably going to have to start at the bottom and then work your way up and then eventually become a gray beard. And then, then you get to make nuclear policy. Do you, did you see sort of a, a willingness of people to say, okay, you know, I, I recognize that there are existing pipelines into the system, but you're going to come in at the bottom. You're going to spend decades, you know, working your way up. And, you know, part of this, there's this saying, you know, how long does it take to make a 30 year nuclear expert? 30 years. And it seems that there's this sort of desire to, you know, skip the 30 years and just be, you know, go to the top right away. As you talk to people and interviewed people, is there sort of a sense that, hey, I understand I'm going to start at the bottom, I'm going to work my way up, I may be in jobs I don't really want, I, you know, I may have to go into, you know, I'll serve in the military, and then, you know, maybe once I've done that, then I can move into a civilian, you know, just whatever that might look like, that they understand there's sacrifice involved and time, and or did you see young people that wanted something different that didn't require all of that? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, on the on the arms control side of the house, so the folks that primarily work outside of government, but not exclusively. I mean, there are obviously folks from the arms control community and the disarmament community that that feed into a lot of government jobs over, you know, and, and have over many decades, um, particularly at the State Department. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I think they, many of them are idealistic. And so they want, you know, they want to make change now. Like, why do, why do we have to wait? We need to do this now. Um, but more to your point, which is the folks that really do want to go into the government, maybe in the military, in the civil service, and really have an impact on, on shaping nuclear strategy, nuclear deterrence. I, you know, I think there is, there are, Certainly pathways, um, maybe not enough, but as you point out, those pathways are not quick. I mean, you have to pay your dues, right? And I think, you know, maybe I'm sounding a little bit like a graybeard, but it's probably not completely different than a lot of other facets of society, which is like, I think the younger generation is sort of conditioned to, you know, get what they want quickly and you know, we older people might say, well, you know, it takes time to earn that. You have to prove that you're, you know, capable of doing these things. You need some track record. I found this in as a, you know, career journalist who started out before the internet and, you know, did a lot of shoe leather reporting, like literally got off my rear end and went and saw people and went to archives and went to libraries and searched public records and, you know, got some exercise, didn't have everything at my fingertips. Um, I used to be frustrated sometimes where young journalists would, and I was teaching at the time at Arizona State University, they seemed to judge the measure of a journalism career by how many Twitter followers you have. Well, hey, they got a million followers. They must be a real deal. And I, you know, I would always think, and sometimes I would say politely, well, you know, your journalism career will be measured on what you produce. 
the investigative journalism you do, the, the writing you do, the reporting you do. I mean, that's what makes you a journalist. It's not that people think you're a journalist and therefore, you know, click and follow you on social media. And so it's, it's hard not to think that in this case, there's a similar sort of vein running through society, which is like, well, I, you know, I got to spend 10 years in the Air Force first before I get a real job. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, I want it now. So, you know, that's a challenge beyond much beyond kind of what we're talking about. But, but yeah, I, I think it's definitely there. People want people, you know, they want to have their big job and they want it now and they don't necessarily want to, you know, earn it. It's that time of the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we get back, I want to ask you, so most of our listeners tend to, they come from the nuclear enterprise, whether it's the Air Force, the civil service, you know, the the labs. And so we, we sort of, you know, know our niche well. Could Could you, when we're back from the break, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the aspirations of those whom you've interviewed who are from the more arms control community and how do they see things? And, and as you talk to them about, you know, what, the, what's needed in terms of deterrence expertise, what, what kinds of answers did you get? So you're listening to Nuclecast and we'll be right back. The ANWA Deterrence Center and Nuclecast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Westin, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. And we're back and we're talking to Brian Bender and we're talking about a great article he wrote in Politico magazine a few months back where he sort of did a survey of the deterrence practitioner in the field in its current state. So I'd given you a a question before the break. So can you, can you clue us in as to what, what you saw and what you heard? Well, I mean, I think the arms control community it's no secret, um, is very concerned that the frameworks that existed uh, throughout, you know, much of the nuclear age have either frayed or in some cases collapsed. The guardrails, so to speak, to limit the biggest arsenals in the world, to ensure that the U.S. and Russia were as transparent as possible about what they were doing and why they were doing it, whether it was a new missile or um, some new nuclear technology. Um, And they're pretty apoplectic that we now are entering sort of this wild west um, where there really are not very many controls or, or internationally agreed rules of the road for how to, operate and maintain these massive world-ending weapons in a way that reduces the chances of miscalculation, of escalation that leads to the unthinkable. And, you know, I, I agree with them in many respects, because I think even if you 
believe strongly in our nuclear deterrent, think that it's the bedrock of our national security and, and has been for decades. Um, I think for much of the Cold War, when we were in this standoff with the Soviet Union, as much as we were building up our arsenals and they were, and we were trying to sort of get advantage, in, you know, in some way over the other, um, as much as, you know, elections turned on lots of rhetoric about missile gaps and, oh, my God, the Russians are going to, you know, destroy us if we don't get our act together. There was always a pretty vibrant group within the government and outside the government that was also advocating for arms control agreements. Yes, we hate the Russians and they hate us, but we acknowledge that these weapons are different. We need to talk about this stuff. Even Ronald Reagan. I mean, some could say Ronald Reagan was one of the most successful arms controllers we ever had in the White House. But at the same time, he was one of the biggest hawks who, you know, increased the size of the military. And, um, you know, some could argue, you know, um, oversaw a buildup that eventually bankrupted the Soviets. Um, and so fast forward to today, I think we're modernizing our arsenal. Um, quite logically, it's very old. We're not doing a whole lot new. I mean, we're not building lots of new weapons. We're just basically replacing the arsenal that we had, right? I mean, it's a little yeah. fancier. It's a little sexier. It's a little stealthier in the case of the, the, uh, the B-21 bomber, but, um, it's really the same stuff, right? But then if you look on the other side of the ledger, you see that the, you know, the Russians basically violated the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. So eventually we backed out of it. They backed out of it. It's, it's dead. Um, the Open Skies Treaty, which wasn't really a nuclear treaty, but it was a sort of strategic agreement that you can fly over our country and spy on us and we'll do it to yours and we'll sort of, you know, let, let each other look a little bit behind the curtain. Um, New START which Biden did agree with Putin to renew, of course, in a couple of days into his presidency for another five years. That's effectively dead. I mean, there haven't been reciprocal inspections of each side's nuclear arsenals in years now. Um, obviously, the war in Ukraine upended everything. Um, and so the arms controllers look at that and they say the guardrails are gone, effectively, or, or if they're not, they're going to be, unless we can figure out a way to revive them. But of course, the elephant in that room is that, well, Ronald Reagan had a partner. Richard Nixon had a partner. Even Barack Obama, in some sense, when uh, New START was first negotiated and ratified, um, Obama negotiated that or agreed with Putin at the time. It was a different Vladimir Putin, maybe. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to see. And you, when you, when you ask this question, I think the arms controllers don't have a great answer, which is, well, how do we, how do we revive those guardrails? You know, what are the building blocks to do it in a way that it actually is effective? Um, you know, because if the Russians don't see the need to follow these treaties like they did in the INF Treaty, and the Chinese don't seem really interested at all, at least yet, in, in anything like that, how do you go about doing it? So the arms control people are quite concerned that, you know, we, we are entering this very complicated nuclear, not entering, entered this new chapter in the nuclear age where we have more nuclear powers, but we also have far less arms control going on, you know, concurrently. And so they see that as kind of a perfect storm of, of danger, of miscalculation, of 
sort of sleepwalking into a nuclear conflict. And, you know, you can't talk about any of this without mentioning that the Russians obviously have been talking in a very dangerous way. Now, whether they're really thinking about using nuclear weapons or that nuclear weapons could be an option in Ukraine, it's hard to know whether it's more just bluster. But, you know, I'm sure, Adam, you read or read reports about some of what their sort of nuclear enterprises writing and thinking about in terms of strategy. They've clearly, um, they've made no bones about how they think that the threshold for using or considering using nuclear weapons was always too high. Maybe it doesn't need to be that high. Maybe there are instances in a limited way that nuclear weapons could be used to achieve their aims. Um, and that's pretty concerning to a lot of people, I think, that, you know, um, that's the kind of talk that I don't think we heard a lot of back in the day. So as, as we think through this this idea of sort of the, the nuclear expert or somebody who does this for a living, what was it that the arms control folks, what did they want? Like, what what was their, like, for, for, for somebody like me, I say, well, geez, I mean, I, I know how to be a nuclear deterrence guy. I mean, you, you know, you either, you join the military, you know, you, you do these things, you know, you get out, you join, you get a PhD, you, or you, you, you know, you start a career in the intelligence community, or you go get a PhD in physics and you go to a lab. There's all these ways to do it. But these other folks don't, they don't see that, you know, in the same way. They don't see sort of, this is how your career starts and progresses in the same way. What do they see as this is how your career starts and progress? What does it look like? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that they know, to be honest with you, a lot of them. I mean, and, you know, when we say arms controllers, we have to be clear that, that there's obviously gradations of that. There are people sure. who believe in arms control, but are also very cognizant that we need to have a nuclear arsenal right now. And we need, uh, you know, the right people to be operating it and managing it and sustaining it and developing the strategies for how to avoid ever having to use it. But obviously, if we did, how would we use it? Um, you know, there are arms controllers that believe that. They also believe that we need to reduce these global levels of these arsenals. We need more transparency, more openness, more of a path to reducing reliance on nuclear weapons, not increasing reliance on it. And I think a lot of people would argue whether conscious or not, the world is going in that direction where we're relying more on it, not less, um, at least than we did in the last couple of decades. Sure. Um, obviously arguable to say it's any more reliant, or that we're any more reliant on it now than we were during the Cold War. But, um, but we're, you know, we're certainly reverting back to relying much more heavily on it. And so there are some in the arms control community that get that, you know, we need to be doing what we're doing. We need to modernize our arsenal. Um, but they also believe, like I was saying earlier, that we need to revive these guardrails somehow. We need to create some more mojo in the international community, in the diplomatic community, to try and keep the lid on this, so to speak. But then, of course, in the arms control community, there is a whole other group that I think very deeply believes that, you know, the pathway to that, you know, the job that you're describing to sort of be the decision maker or the policy maker they have to uh, completely 
make an end run around that process. They don't believe in that process. In fact, they, they would, a lot of them would say that process is part of the problem. Um, the nuclear enterprise is so embedded in our sort of national security psyche, whether it's the money that goes to these weapons, the companies that benefit from it, the senators that want jobs in their states from it, that, that by going into the system, so to speak, I think a lot of arms controllers, particularly the younger generation, would say, we'll just be contributing to the system that we want to destroy. Like, why would we want to do that? So I think there's this element, and this has been bubbling around the arms control community for a number of years now, which is we can't trust the world's nuclear powers to do the right thing anymore. I mean, the Nonproliferation Treaty in 1970, all the declared nuclear powers, at least at the time, said, hey, you know, the rest of the world, you guys shouldn't get these things. These are really bad. And we promise that we'll work towards getting rid of them. A lot of the arms controllers who know that history and really believe we need to find another path will say, well, you guys are full of it. You guys haven't done that. That's 50 years ago. What have you done to reduce reliance on nuclear weapons? And so they believe this, you know, this group in the arms control community, and it might not even be right to say they're arms controllers, because that presumes that they understand treaties and they understand history. They're disarmament people. They, they, they you know, they want to, you know, get rid of these things. And I think they think the way to do that is to build the grassroots support to do it. In other words, we need to build enough support among international publics to, and among nations that are not nuclear powers to browbeat the nuclear powers into you know, waking up and getting some sanity. And, you know, how, how do you do that? What's the pathway to do that? I have no idea. And I'm not sure they do either, other than to organize and be activists and raise the profile and um, vilify nuclear weapons and vilify any country that thinks that they're worth anything. Um, so that's a very different, so when we talk about arms control, it's like I said, we need to be careful who, you know, who we're talking about. Um, I think there's arms controllers who believe in treaties and understand the role of nuclear weapons, but then there's kind of the, the mostly younger generation of very active kind of believers in disarmament, like a nuclear free world. Yeah. Now it's that time in the show where I bring out Bob and as I rub my magic <laughs> lamp and Bob grants you three wishes, but only related to the topics we've been discussing. Oh, darn. I was hoping it was three, you know, no limit. No, no. Um, yeah. So our topic, so, you know, you've given us, you, you wrote an extensive article on this challenge of, you know, do we have the requisite, you know, talent to do that, this kind of work. So you, you now get to make wishes. So what would wish number hmm. one be? Well, this sort of sticking with not just the nuclear enterprise topic, but the topic of my article. I mean, I guess, I mean, one wish would be in just the realm of education. I mean, I think, you know, every school student in America of a certain age, I don't think you want to start them too young, should have to watch the movie the day after. Yeah. I watched that movie when it came out in 1984 or five or six or whatever it was. And the reason why I throw that out there is because I, I think there really is this complacency in society that we've lost that nuclear weapons really matter. 
they're really important and they're actually getting more and more important. And that would be my one wish, because I think if we don't have a younger generation that understands the stakes here, I mean, everything these days seem, you know, can be so theoretical. And, you know, I think that movie yeah. shows you what's at stake. If we don't take this seriously, if we don't have the right people managing this, um, whatever side you might come from. Um, so that would be my first wish. So Second let me wish. ask you, in, yeah. in order to make that a reality, if I commit to becoming a social influencer on the nuclear topic, and I'll make, I want to be more popular or more infamous than Andrew Tate. <laughs> that, so that means I've got like millions of followers, you know, on, on X or Twitter or whatever and Instagram. Well, and I'll, are you going to be, are you going to help me make that happen? And, and I would we, totally help we, you make that happen. Although if we could become, or you can become an influencer like that, I would say, forget the day after. If you have a million followers, let's create some short film that can fit on TikTok in 45 seconds that captures what I am talking about. Um, okay. All right. We'll and obviously it's, it's more current and talks yeah. about the current situation as opposed to, you know, the Cold War in the 1980s. Um, so, yeah, I'm totally game for that. Okay. So that's wish number one. We, we're going to solve that problem. How about wish number two? Wish number two. Um This is a little bit of a joke, but not really. I just read the other day that um, the Sentinel, so the replacement ICBM for the Minuteman 3, is apparently in breach of Nun McCurdy, which is yes. this very esoteric law where, you know, of course it's costing gobs of money more than North of Grumman or the other contractors or the Pentagon ever told Congress. Big surprise there, right? Um, we've seen this movie before. Nothing ever costs um what they say it's going to cost. Um, and I love the air force's statement on it, which was you could have like cut and pasted it into every other major defense program in the course of history. We've never done anything this complicated before. It's a lot of new systems and a lot of integration and a lot of things that we're really, you know, kind of reinventing. So therefore, you know, these things are hard. They never cost what you think they're going to cost, um, which is what they always say. So my wish would be, in a very narrow sense, um, that they get that program right and they get it um, right in a way that doesn't, you know, bankrupt other nuclear priorities. Because the Miniman 3s are old, 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 and they are the bedrock of our deterrent. And if you believe in a deterrent, and even if you believe that we should have more arms control treaties and we should reduce the level of these arsenals – we still need a replacement for the Minuteman three and we need it pretty damn soon. Um, yeah. So that would be wish number two, that they get it right. And um, they don't, you know, spend the whole bank on it. Yeah. Now wish number three. Wish number three. Um, I'm not calling for regime change here, but I am calling for some clearer heads, particularly in Moscow and Beijing. I mean, I, and I say that because I really do fear that we live in a world that I think is more unpredictable or getting more unpredictable. And I do worry that without the leaders of the biggest arsenals talking to each other and somehow divorcing this issue of nuclear weapons from everything else that we bicker about, 
which I think we did a decent job of doing during the Cold War. I think it's really important to get back to that. And so I would love President Xi and President Putin to wake up one morning and say, hey, you know, we hate the Americans for all this stuff, but maybe we should sit down with them and have a honest discussion about how do we prevent a nuclear Armageddon? Because, you know, nobody's going to win that war, right? Even you don't believe, Adam Lothar, that that we can win a nuclear war, right? The costs are great, but, uh, you know... But you can certainly, uh, you certainly should plan to win that war, because I, you know, I would hold that deterrence is more stable when your adversary thinks you do plan to fight and win a nuclear war. Uh, that that's well, probably... that is true, and, and that gets to this whole idea of having people who are really smart and innovative who can think about deterrence and what that means and how you implement it in a way in a world that is very different. I mean, I, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, if your enemy thinks you're crazy enough to think you can win, maybe that strengthens your deterrence. It probably does, right? If yeah. that enemy doesn't think they can win. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Brian Bender, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast to talk about your great article and, you know, shed some light on, you know, this sort of spectrum of arms control, disarmament community and what they're thinking and, you know, because that's something we really don't talk about that often. So thanks for adding that to the to the bin of knowledge. Yeah. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. And we'll see you next time. Well, that was a good discussion with Brian. Uh, always enjoy talking to him. Uh, I first met Brian. I, I wrote an article when he was at the Boston Globe uh, and and so he published a, one of the first pieces I ever wrote. And so we've stayed in touch over the years and he's always been sort of an even handed, fair minded, uh, you know, journalist to, to look at things. So it's, it's interesting to hear, uh, hear what he says and just hear his take because, you know, he sort of works across both the arms control and disarmament community talks to guys like me and probably some of you out there and so to hear sort of what the state of play is and where everybody is, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly an interesting take and a, you know, way to understand where the profession and where, you know, where the lay of the land is. Hopefully you enjoyed it. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.